Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Renita Malhotrahora. Apple's forecasts exceed analyst estimates, uh, but IBM plunges after its, after ditching its 2015 forecast and its quarterly profits decline. The S&P advances on Apple on your end, but European stocks fall and gold climbs. Germany and France have had a meeting to vow investment, but uh, sidestepping who will actually pay for it. And the conference board says that China's growth might slow to 4% after 2020. Today, we'll uh, look at the markets and the European economy with London-based Tom Elliott of the DeVere Group. And for an update on political and financial maneuverings in Japan, we'll speak with Mark Michelson of APCO Worldwide. Chris Oliver will talk market strategy with Louis Vincent Gave of Gave Cal. And my guest host this morning is Andrew Sullivan. Good morning, Andrew. Record level. A quick look at today's top stories. Uh, U.S. stocks rose overnight, extending the rally that began late last week, uh, even as uh, European equity markets stumbled. But gains on the Dow were limited by IBM, which plunged over 7%. That's after it it reported sharply lower third quarter profits due to the $4.7 billion US, uh, U.S. dollar cost of offloading its microchip business to global foundries. The Dow ended 19 points higher at 16,399. The S&P 500 rose 0.9% to 1,904, while the Nasdaq jumped 1.35% to 4,316. Bob Janjua, a senior independent client advisor at Nomura International, has a pivot level in the market that has been guiding him for some weeks. So that's the weekly close on the S&P at 1905. Um, I think after last week's close, where we, we threatened to, to get to there, uh, but fell, fell off at the end, um, gives me more comfort. I think peak to trough, uh, assuming the peak was at around 2000 to 2020. Uh, my base case expectation is for something like 15 to 20% decline. Uh, before we're done, and I think that will take us through to November, late November perhaps. Andrew, good morning. Morning. So, Andrew, what do you think has precipitated this price action? I mean, we've been talking a lot about volatility, but I think this question is still foremost on everybody's minds. What actually started it? Was it Draghi? Was it the global economy markdown? What specifically was it? Well, I think it's it's concerns about from the markets and and really it probably goes back to the fact that we've had QE now for you know 5 6 years and you know the banks themselves have been highly regulated uh, so that there's very little you know free thought and uh, very little flexibility left within the banks you know the bond market uh, traders no longer hold stock they're only allowed to hold very little uh, amounts of uh, bonds for their own trading book so that when we get these moves it, it becomes exponential very quickly uh, because the, at the end of the day the regulators have tried to take risk out of the system uh, and then when something happens there's no scope for the uh, the system to be able to to cater with it whereas before you know whilst there was more risk but it it was able to uh, react to different situations as they occurred do you agree with bob janjua um, of namura securities who is saying that uh, the the s&p 500 could drop to the 1500 level by november I think that'll be very difficult. I mean, we're still seeing good earnings coming out of the U.S. Um, you know, we're part of the way through the earnings season. But, you know, you've got, you know, a very diverse range coming through. You know, we had great results from Apple, but we've had a very poor results from IBM. So I think people will be focusing very much on those results in the next couple of weeks. But, I mean, a huge amount of downside is, is probably unlikely. 
Okay, so we definitely want to discuss a little bit more about the earnings. We'll save that for a little bit later in the show. Uh, let's look at Europe. Anyone hoping that last week's market turmoil might spur Germany and France to take decisive action to spur growth in the Eurozone is bound to be disappointed by yesterday's meeting between the heads of the two uh, countries, the top ministers, I should say, in the two countries, because it didn't really amount to much. They agreed only to work on a plan that, will, that they will present in December. So European markets were down. The FTSE 100 dropped 43 points to close at 6,267. The CAC 40 dropped uh, 41 points to 3,991. And the DAX dropped 130 points to 132 points to 8,717. Let's bring in Tom Elliott, who is the international investment strategist at the DeVere Group. He joins us now from London. Good morning, Tom. Or perhaps I should say, uh, good good night. It's you know many many points to you for sort of staying up this late. <laughs> no problem, no problem. So Tom, what was the reason for the stock decline in Europe yesterday? Was it the outcome of the meeting, or is it just like everything else that's been looming? Yes, I, I think last week we had uh, problems with Greece that uh, saw ten-year bonds go up to uh, I think it was about nine percent at one stage. But that was a bit of a red herring. That was a secular story relevant to Greek uh, politics. The more fundamental story and the reason why European markets have underperformed um, during this bear market that we've seen is a sense that the fiscal compact that uh, was agreed um, a few years ago, uh, a a revision of the original um, uh, agreement uh, done when the euro was created, is now being broken uh, by France and Italy. And the Germans feel very strongly that if there's no agreement on deficits, then you cannot have a functioning single currency. So we've got that. We've got the very slow pace of structural reform taking place in France and Italy, uh, which, again, Germany wants to see more of. And you've also got the fact that um, Germany is exporting too much. So it's sucking up whatever... Uh, export orders there there are in the world, and uh, it's not creating enough demand itself. So you've got quite a few things going on which bode ill for the euro, I fear, in the long term. Andrew, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Do you think that there is actually a way out? Well, I think it comes back to the same problem, that you've got a number of countries with very different agendas. Uh, Germany is is adamant that it's going to balance its budget next year, come hell or high water, whereas uh, France and Italy are concerned about growth and jobs for their people. So there is a dichotomy going on, and and in that situation, Draghi has got to try and uh, marry these different ways together. And and at the end of the day, it's the currency that takes the hit. Tom, you know, we've been seeing all of this volatility, uh, certainly in the U.S. markets. And, you know, many of our analysts are saying, oh, well, that's nothing to worry about. It's normal. It's normal for October, uh, so on and so forth. When you look at European equities, uh, they've erased as much as something like uh, $5.5 trillion, uh, you know, dollars from the value of shares worldwide so far. Um, is there concern? Are you concerned that the European Central Bank's stimulus measures won't be enough to spur growth? Yes, yes, I am. And I, I certainly think that's an additional factor weighing on sentiment regarding Europe. Uh, when you look at uh, the calls on the ECB to do a US-UK star quantitative easing, you've got to ask yourself, what good will it do, bearing in mind that actually 
so very much less uh, capital financing in, in Europe is raised from the bond market compared to America. So it's not altogether clear that by lowering the longer end of the yield curve, um, you're going to get that much stimulus coming through into the corporate sector as you might have expected. Um, and there's a sense that if they can't, do, if that's not going to do anything, what, what will work? Has the ECB reached the end of what it can do? And uh, frank, frankly, this is when we start scaring ourselves very, very seriously. And this is why I think longer term, I actually think the euro is equivalent to the gold standard and um, no country was able to keep to the gold standard in the end. And I rather fear the euro will turn out like this. Do you agree with that, Andrew? What do you think about the euro being compared to the gold standard? Well, it, 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 it's probably true. I mean, we, we keep looking for an alternative currency, an alternative reserve. Uh, for years it was the gold standard, then we've had the US dollar. Uh, the, the financial crisis proved that the US dollar was not necessarily the be-all and end-all. Uh, and, and probably at the end of the day we'll have a basket of currencies that people uh, put together, be some from Asia, some from Europe and some from the US. But I think he's right. I mean, I think the euro is trying to bring all things together, but... It's only the financial side it's trying to bring together. It's not one central government okay. ruling those countries. Okay, Tom, how long do you think the euro is going to last and what should investors be doing in the meantime? Oh, well, actually, can I answer that back to front? In the, in the near term, I think, actually, investors should definitely stay in stocks. I mean, one of the side effects of um, weak global growth and also weak compared to other, other points in this cycle and weak inflation everywhere, is that this does give uh, those stocks that people were buying for income an extra lease of life. Uh, we know from looking at five-year, five-year long-term interest rate expectations that it is still worthwhile to be buying some high-dividend-paying farmers, tobacco stocks, you name it, on the equity side. So I think actually the current doom and gloom, ironically, is supportive of uh, the high-yielding the defensive equities. And when it comes to the uh, longer term, how long do I give to the euro, it depends entirely on uh, whether we can see a full-blown political and fiscal union develop from this crisis. Then the euro is saved. If you help create a federal structure with inbuilt transfers like United States of okay. Europe, uh, sorry, right. of United States in Europe, then it can work. However, the political will simply isn't there. It clearly isn't there in Germany. Every move towards further union is, uh, is done with kicking and screaming and legal challenges. I very much doubt if it's in southern Europe that they're going to be willing to have Germans overseeing every item of expenditure, even if it's done through a Brussels institution. Um, so I, I, this is why I'm pessimistic and, it, and it's not just because I'm British and therefore so in a way naturally a little more Eurosceptic. I'm, I'm just looking at, at every all the news flow and I do think that uh, the only thing we can give to break the stagnation of the Eurozone is devaluation in the, in the periphery. Okay, thanks Tom. Okay, Andrew, so he's not British, saying this because he's British and pessimistic. Can I put that to you, British and pessimistic or not? Well, no. I mean, I think. I mean, I think the, the trouble, as he says, there is the fact that you know you have you're trying to uh, 
arrange the fiscal side of all these countries through a, a single currency, but you have no political uh, mandate either. And this is something that Draghi has been going on about recently. He can provide stimulus and all the rest of it, but he's still reliant on the individual countries changing their domestic policies to, to support what he's doing on the fiscal side. And... You know, you don't have that problem in the U.S. You know, the Fed controls all the states in the United States, so it has that that bigger mandate and the ability to implement it. All right. Thanks. Uh, thank you to Tom Elliott, who is an international investment strategist at the DeVere Group. We'll be back to speak uh, with Andrew Moore about earnings right after this. Statistics are vital to society's development. Where do the data come from? From you. Census and Statistics Department officers may visit your workplace to collect data. They may also visit your home to gather information. By law, all the information collected is kept in strict confidence. For a better future, let's support government statistical surveys. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I want money. That's what I want. Okay, the time is now 8.16 a.m. And in earnings news, the sale of iPhones, including the new big screen iPhone 6 models released last month, helped carry Apple to a record-breaking quarter with an $8.5 billion profit. The company's profit for its fiscal fourth quarter was 13.3% higher than the same quarter a year ago. And revenue over the quarter was $42.1 billion, up from $37.4 billion in the same period last year. Overall, Apple sold 39 million iPhones over the quarter, a significant bump um, from this same period, uh, bump up from the same period last year. IBM, however, didn't do that well. The company reported sharply lower third quarter profits. Here's Martin Scroder. He is IBM's CFO, Finance and Enterprise Transformation. Here he is on the earnings call. We delivered operating net income of $3.7 billion and earnings per share of $3.68, all excluding the discontinued semiconductor manufacturing business. These results fell short of our expectations, and I'd attribute the shortfall to three primary drivers. First, our software revenue was weaker than expected. We had some sales execution issues, and in addition, we've made it easier for our clients to manage their IBM software capacity across new and more traditional workloads as they invest in our platform for the longer term. Second, we didn't get the productivity required in our services business, impacting both our profit and margin. And third, the environment, including currency, isn't helping. With a sharp movement in currency rates in September, there was some effect in the quarter, and we expect it to have a larger impact going forward. And for the business overall, we did see a slowdown in September, which had a particular impact on us, given the skew of our transactional business. IBM also said that it was paying $1.5 billion in cash to semiconductor experts' global foundries to take over its microchip unit. Although the cash payments will be made over three years, IBM is taking a $4.7 billion pre-tax charge in its financial results for the third quarter of 2014. This covers the cash payment and all related charges and costs for getting rid of the costly unit. Andrew, what do you make of uh, the earnings results uh, announced this morning? Well, certainly Apple is, is going to be encouraging. But again, you know, we're, we're seeing uh, good sales of iPhones, but it's very a very competitive market and it's one that's probably becoming saturated, as we've seen with the iPad and other things. 
And, and to a degree, IBM also illustrates that. You know, it's, it's an ageing industry that's becoming more like a utility than a growth, growth area. That's sad. It's, uh, you know, when tech companies start out, they always look real interesting. They've got huge scopes of growth. And then when you get to the point where you're comparing them to utilities, you know you've reached a real boredom. <laughs> what is next in that case? I mean, is it software companies and software, you know, programs like the Facebooks and the Googles that are going to entice investors? Is there no scope for hardware anymore? Well, I don't think there's no scope for hardware. But I mean, if you look at the history of these things, you know, when mobile phones were getting smaller now they're getting larger as people putting more apps on them so yes i think the software side certainly building it into more convenience obviously people are waiting for the uh, for apple's watch and things like that the fact that they're putting in transaction methods into phones nowadays shows that they want to make it more of a utility instrument yeah and a lot of the analysts really like that they love the fact that apple is a sort of a one-stop shop it you know combines the software and the hardware you've got everything all under one umbrella but that's not what I'm hearing you say. Well, I think at the end of the day, I mean, you, you can only have so many new phones and, and people get used to their phone and there aren't so many times that you want to upgrade it straight away just because they bring out a new model. I mean, the advances each time seem to be getting smaller and smaller. Okay. A quick look at the numbers. Uh, the Nikkei is open. It is down uh, 0.19% to 15,083. Australia's ASX uh, index is up 0.2% to 5,319. And uh, Seoul's Kospi is down 0.4% to 1,921. Well, uh, Japanese stocks rallied amid optimism that the nation's $1.2 trillion pension fund will boost stock holdings. Japan's Topix index jumped 4%, which is the most uh, it has done so since June 2013. And the Nikkei also rose 4% to close yesterday uh, at uh, 15,111. Now, of course, this comes as two members of the cabinet resigned within a matter of hours. Both were among five women ministers appointed Appointed less than two months ago. The Justice Minister, Midori Matsushima, has been accused by the opposition of violating election laws. The Trade and Industry Minister, Yuko Obuchi, is alleged to have misused funds from her political groups and other donations. Uh, let's bring in Mark Michelson of APCO Worldwide. He's a senior counselor there. Good morning, Mark. Hi, Renita. How are you? I'm great, Mark. Uh, thank you. Uh, Mark, what's happening in Japan? Um, you know, sort of the empowering, uh, empowering women has been really high on uh, Abe's agenda. Uh, women just not ready for positions in government? Well, actually, all five are in trouble oh. for, various, for various other reasons. The other three are, are as well. You know, part of, it is, part of it is the nature of Japanese politics. You might also have some suspicion that that because they're women, they're targeted. For example, in the, in the case of the uh, in the case of the justice minister, really her violation is that she sent out paper fans to uh, to, to her supporters, which doesn't sound like a, a gigantic thing, but I guess it does violate uh, violate Japanese rules. But At Mark, I mean, thing, when you think about that for a second, I mean, isn't that sort of normally the kind of thing that politicians do? I mean, you know, we call them tchotchkes in the U.S., you know, hand things out to your supporters. I mean, how how bad is that? <laughs> yeah, you would think so. Clearly, they're highly targeted. And, you know, I think part of this is trying to get at Abe himself, who has looked pretty invulnerable for a while. But this, 
although it, I don't think by any means it's a, uh, it's a fatal blow, it does at least uh, dent his, his invulnerability to some extent. And also in terms of Abenomics, uh, a couple of these people, especially Obuchi, uh, an important role in, in pushing it forward in a couple of areas, especially areas like nuclear power plants and other areas of reform. And so uh, this does raise some doubts on top of uh, on top of other concerns as they approach a decision on whether to to really raise the consumption tax again next April. Now, Andrew, I mean, the markets didn't really seem to care. They surged, you know, four percent yesterday. Tell us about that. Well, I think the you know the Abe's uh, situation is obviously uh, always being reviewed, and his popularity is coming down as people wait to see whether Arbonomics actually takes effect uh, and how effective he's actually going to be. And at the same time, it's still very much playing on the currency as well, which is uh, much more to do with the global situation. And and that's going to continue. So you agree with that, Mark? Yeah, I I do. I mean, you know, his problems, I mean, Japan's problems as well, are largely economic. You know, the economy, as you know, shrunk over 7% uh, compared with a year ago in the the last quarter. They're looking very closely at what the next numbers are going to be, which I think uh, come out early next month and we'll be able to to get get a gauge on what's going on, so there's pressures from both sides. There's pressures from uh, from you know from from the IMF and from the Bank of Japan to continue this policy and to really really look hard at, uh, at restructuring. And then also uh, internally, there's pressure. Well, we're really suffering from this, and you know, has the economy gone in the wrong direction again? So you know, he's in a difficult position. Yes. Indeed. So I guess we'll just have to wait and see how things play out. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Mark Michelson. He's the senior counselor at APCO Worldwide. When investing in Asia, the single most important factor is country selection. Get the country right and the rest sorts itself out. Chris Oliver talks with Louis Vincent Gave. Uh, Gave, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. Um, co-founder of the fund management firm Gave Cal. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. Uh, right now, the Philippines ranks highly in terms of growth, momentum and liquidity. The country also has a positive demographic. These are the views of Louis Gav. He is the chief investment officer of GavCal, based here in Hong Kong. Good morning, uh, Louis. Good morning, Chris. Thanks a bunch for having me. So uh, tell us just briefly why you're into the Philippines. Um, I think you said it. But um, look, before I go there, I think the uh, important thing to acknowledge is that roughly two-thirds of the time, markets behave broadly normally. They react to things like changes in growth, interest rates, inflation. And then roughly a third of the time, markets, you could say, act abnormally. You see massive uh, levels of correlations across the globe, higher volatility. Um, All the stocks around the world get driven by one factor, uh, whether that be Greek bond yields or U.S. mortgage rates or whatever else. Um, And in such periods, country selection doesn't add as much value as in the normal periods. Now, I think it's important to acknowledge that as of late, we have been in the later category. Um, Markets have started to act abnormally. Very high levels of correlations, very high volatility, fewer individual drivers to stock performance. Um, And so once you've acknowledged this reality, what do you do? I think you look for markets that are not overly dependent uh, and influenced by foreign flows, 
you look for markets where policy matter uh, policy um, makers are not too constrained, um, and you look for markets where you have some valuation protection and markets that seem to be holding on to uh, an overall positive momentum trend. Um, and as we see it, uh, the Philippines is in, falls into that category uh, today, uh, but other markets in Asia do. What's been quite encouraging in this sell-off is actually how volatility in Asia, even as volatility has spiked in the U.S. and in Europe, volatility in Asia hasn't uh, gone out of whack in places like China, Taiwan, and some of the other markets. Now, I know that you're also invested in other countries around the region, uh, and I wanted to just get your view here on China as we approach the, the direct cross-border share trading. Uh, it's coincidental, but the China's uh, Shanghai Composite is at a nearly two-year high. How do you feel about China? Um, well, it's actually our sing, uh, single biggest holding in our portfolio today. We're uh, uh, very optimistic on China, partly indeed on the Hong Kong-Shanghai Connect, but also Shanghai, uh, China has really been one of these markets that, you know, over the past few years has really sort of danced to the tune of its own drum. Uh, it goes down when the market goes up. It goes up when other markets go down. And uh, and again lately. So it's been, you know, if you think about it, over the past few months, as the bad news from Europe has piled in, as uh, concern about valuations uh, in the U.S. have piled in, China has uh, managed to hold on to a very decent performance. And as you say, it's uh, it's making a two-year high. And in these markets, very often the trend is your friend. So right now the trend favors Chinese equities. The news flow favors Chinese equities. You're seeing bank recapitalizations. You're seeing more financial deregulation. So why fight this trend? Now, traditionally China has been a cheap manufacturing hub uh, with the onset of robotics and the prevalence of actually falling manufacturing prices in places like the United States, does that undermine the China story at all? Um, it changes the China story for sure. Uh, I think if you look at the 90s and 2000, the, the countries that thrived were the countries that were able to provide the world with cheap labor. Um, and that's you know what, uh, what um, reshaped our global economy. The story for the reason you very highlight, the rise of robotics, the rise of automation, the, uh, the ever uh, cheapness of uh, doing things via computer, um, all these point towards a world okay. where cheap labor doesn't matter. And so that, yeah, that changes the Chinese business model for sure. Sorry to cut it a bit short this morning. Uh, thank you very much. That's Louis Gav. He's no Chief Investment Officer of GavCall here in Hong Kong. And thank you, Chris. A quick look at the numbers for this morning. Euro to the U.S. Uh, dollar currently is 1.27. The U.S. dollar to the Japanese yen is 106. And one Great Britain pound buys you 12.5 Hong Kong dollars. Uh, Brent crude oil is down 0.2% to $85 uh, per barrel. And gold is at 1,240 per ounce. Um, a quick reminder that the government is set to talk with the student protesters later today uh, about the Occupy movement. Now, we'll be broadcasting the entire talks live this evening in a special news wrap program that runs from uh, 5.55 to 9 o'clock. So do make sure you tune in. And if you've got questions or insight, then feel free to post a comment to our Facebook page or send me a tweet at Reeny Mal, R-E-E-N-Y-M-A-L. Thank you to our Thank you to our guests for today and our guest host Andrew Sullivan. 
A quick look at the weather forecast. It'll be mainly cloudy with sunny periods during the day. The maximum temperature will be around 30 degrees with light to moderate easterly winds. The temperature right now is 25 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 72%. And now it's time for the half-hour news summary with Samantha Butler. A pro-democracy activist says he hopes tonight's talks on political reform will lead to the government submitting a supplementary report to Beijing so the National People's Congress Standing Committee can revise its ruling on Hong Kong's electoral system. Student protest leaders and senior officials will hold televised talks from 6pm. The convener of the Alliance for True Democracy, Professor Joseph Cheng, told RTHK this morning that this was the best outcome for the talks despite the government already saying it would not submit another report. I do believe that the rejection of a supplementary report seems unreasonable because there are no regulations, no formal documents rejecting this idea, this option of a supplementary report. And obviously, in view of the uh, situation, a supplementary report is called for. After all, even Premier Li Keqiang agrees that the situation is changing every day and it is said that President Xi Jinping is receiving reports on the Hong Kong situation every day. The High Court has granted two temporary injunctions to bar demonstrators.